Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Michael Mangione. Michael is the global head of digital experience and brand at WL Gore and Associates. Of course, WL Gore is famous for their Gore-Tex technical fabric and many other technical innovations over the last 65 years. Michael is a long-term, very experienced B2B e-commerce expert, and he shares all about how to build fantastic B2B e-commerce experiences for customers, as well as how to build internal capability around B2B e-commerce to help brands be the best that they can be. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the e-commerce edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Michael Mangione to the podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Jason. Pleasure to be here. It's so good to have you here. Now, you're based in the great state of Massachusetts, aren't you? I'm located in Andover, Massachusetts. Yeah, well, you guys get some pretty serious winters, don't you? We do. Pretty mild this year. I like I enjoy the snow. I enjoy the winter. At some point, I might not. But yeah, this year was a little disappointing. Yeah, my, my mother was actually born in Boston and uh, was rapidly, my, my grandfather was in the Navy and he was then stationed out in California. And so they rapidly, when she was still very young, moved from Boston out to Southern California where they stayed for the rest of their life. But I, I, under, I haven't been to Massachusetts yet, but I understand it's absolutely stunning, particularly in, in autumn with the turning of the leaves. So I'm going to have to make my way out there at some stage. You should. It, I'm a New Englander. I love it. I love what we have here in terms of oceans, mountain, ocean, mountains, lakes, beaches. It's just, it's a great area. Beautiful. And you've been with WL Gore and Associates for nearly five years, over four and a half years now, global head of digital experience and brand, but certainly not your first rodeo when it comes to digital. Previously, we were with Bose and you were global head of digital marketing, personalized customer experience at Bose. You, you did over a decade there marketing communications manager, Bach Edwards. So look, you do have this strong digital background, but the reason why I was really super interested in getting you on was to talk specifically about B2B. And we've got this new sub-series on the podcast, B2B Commerce Corner. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to marshal together a brain trust of knowledge and capability about B2B commerce because B2C and D2C commerce, they're pretty mature. There's lots of modern technology to help with that, personalization technology, search merch, all the digital channels for B2C, D2C are pretty pretty clear and cut and dried, integration with marketplaces and the like. And I feel like B2B got a big shot in the arm during sales reps and the like. Couldn't go and couldn't go and meet with customers, right? And so we had the situation where a lot of B2B businesses that either didn't do e-commerce at all prior to COVID or did it very poorly, and it was not a key focus of their business. They really had a rocket put under them during COVID to up their digital game quite substantially. And in some cases, even starting to list on things like Amazon Business and other B2B-focused marketplaces. So really, the emphasis was put on how can we very rapidly lift our digital game as B2B businesses? And so I felt like there's just such a lack of sharing of that knowledge, of that expertise out there, of the deep specialists in digital around B2B. And that's why I wanted to have you on. So thank you for coming here. How did you get into digital commerce? How did you come to be in this industry? And particularly from a B2B perspective, how did you come to be in the industry? 
It's interesting. I've had many years of consumer experience and the expectations with consumers was for digital and engagement and experience overall was quite high, right? So we live it every day. You don't actually need to be in the space to know what you expect when you engage digitally. So what was happening, what I was seeing even before COVID was customer expectations was bleeding over from our day-to-day consumer experience into having that same expectation when working in a B2B environment. You don't flip a switch and say, I like having things at my fingertips. I like personalization. I like the way things are very easy and time-saving for me and valuable. All of a sudden and say, now I'm on this screen and my expectations are much, much lower and I'm willing to put a lot more effort in, and especially in a business environment where even more so time is money. So what was intriguing to me was starting to take some of the trends from consumer and applying them to a B2B environment where It's difficult in both areas for different reasons, but theoretically in a B2B environment, you should have a little bit more of a closed loop environment where you can maybe understand more, target more and and personalize in a better way and measure in better ways as well. So that was the real catalyst. Yet certainly during the COVID years, there was an additional push for, we all had to change the way we engaged. Every aspect of things changed. And now, but I've always believed in somewhat of the human assisted by digital approach to things. And I think when we look in a B2B environment, there's many aspects of how decisions are made and who is influenced by them. And some of them are always going to be better served face-to-face, but they're more and more assisted with digital. And then in some cases, more transactionally digitally. digital. And, and did you see that when you were brought on at Bose and now with Gore, have, did you see that when they brought you on the whole idea behind this was to try to bring a really cutting edge e-commerce experience ultimately and this obviously it's an evolution not a revolution right especially with b2b because they're oftentimes operating most b2bs are operating in 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 legacy businesses they're operating in legacy verticals sometimes they're family businesses where now they're second and third generation children and grandchildren are now running the companies and they realize geez, we've got to get up to speed here with the e-commerce thing, even though we've never done it before. And did you see that when we're brought on to these businesses that you were one of the few people in the space that they could tap to try to bring that consumer-grade experience to the B2B commerce experience, but at layering on all those additional pieces of functionality that a B2B customer expects when they're buying through a vendor slash supplier? Did you find that you were a rare breed? Or did you find that really they just saw, they recognized, hey, we really need to add some resources to this side of our business? Because if we don't, we're going to get left behind by competitors that are. I think it's the latter. I was brought in by a group that that were really driving digital and across end to end, right? We're fortunate. We have talented associates across the spectrum. Of course, in this space, it's always more challenging to to acquire talent, right? So I'd like to think that I've added to that pool. And there's going to be some scarcity in that. It's in every company is challenged with that to some degree. Digital native, maybe a little less, right? Digital first companies. We're fortunate to work with other talented team members. And I was brought in from with some folks who had a vision around how we want to look at end-to-end digital experiences and really improve those. And it's a simple mantra. It's customer value leads to business value. And if that all works, then our associates feel more valuable and and like they've contributed more greatly. So I think we, commerce is a piece of that, right? But there's many engagements around sales, service, and marketing where 
like I mentioned earlier, digital can play a very key role in especially some of the things that better serve, whether you want to do it on your time, on your schedule, the availability of resources aren't there. So it was part of an overall effort. I was fortunately brought in that wave and we've continued to do it. But of course, there's always going to be challenges with, with bringing, bringing talent in, in in advancing the digital capabilities, and I, and hopefully I've been a part of doing that. And have you? Did you find that you met with any resistance in particularly the B two B focused roles that you've been in, from the likes of the sales team, for example, that may be incented on commissions, and maybe they're a field sales rep or whatever it might be? Have you seen a need to really get sales and marketing on the bus of digital enablement and digital transformation in the business? Or had that groundwork already been laid in a top-down approach before you got into these businesses? Or was it something that you had to effectively de-risk it for the sales engine of the business by saying, hey, look, we're not here to take business off you. We're not here to take commissions off you. We're not here to, we're not here to harm what you do as a salesperson, we're actually going to enable you to do your job better, faster, more efficiently with less admin overhead. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to enable the business digitally with capability, not just for the customer experience, but for the sales experience, internal sales experience as well, and admin. And we're trying to basically make everybody more efficient at what they do and able to focus on building relationships instead. So what has been your experience in terms of trying to get everybody on the bus of digital inside of a B2B business? Again, it's at any organization, it's an evolution, right? And there needs to be a strategic vision on why this is beneficial to the organization, to our customers, to our associates, to our business, in other companies, employees. And there's always going to be in every area of teams where there's more of a forward-looking vision, some that maybe it's not as big of a priority. And there's always challenge with that. But again, I think what's most important, no one person, I find this is always a team sport and no one person is going to be the one to come in on the horse and save the day. I think what you look for is where is there opportunity across the business? How do you look at business cases and how do we advance what we're trying to do as an organization? Where is it strategically important? And if, if operating the right way, then teams and leaders collaborate together to say, let's get to this target state. We believe in this business case. We believe in this value story around things like commerce and digital advancement. There's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be proving value. I like to think of it in terms of not so much meeting resistance, but the onus, I find when teams are trying to drive change, there's a pretty high burden of proof to to demonstrate why that's the right thing to do and to prove the value associated it with it I think there's too many situations where leaders come in trying to drive a mandate, folks don't follow, but it's really because you really need to show why this is, why there's a vision for this, why we will benefit from it. To my point earlier, where I really, and I learned this in previous life at Bose in in a retail environment, is digital can be a big, can get an assist in many cases. There's environments where we know that the high value interactions will likely be done either in person or by human beings somehow. But there's a lot of tactical things that are just better served done digitally, like e-commerce in certain cases. By doing it that way, if it works well, you're actually freeing up time for talented sales service people to spend more time on the high value conversations where they're going to enjoy it more. And you only get so much time 
So if you want to use some of that time doing to track tactical transactional things, um, we can do that. But I think where most people are at is they want to spend that high value time working on things that are more strategic and more value driving. Yeah, I think in any circumstance, you have to prove this out. You need, you need to bring teams along. And it takes a team of cross, I believe firmly that things like commerce, other digital engagement, it's a highly cross-functional collaborative game. And the teams that do it best, the organizations do it best, have that cross-functional team that's really empowered to say, we think we can get this thing to a better state. And if you do it the right way, then the one, the folks who have concerns and might be more resistant to change, I think you, you, they come along eventually because they see the groundswell. And in any environment I've been in, it's a long road. We, like, we have plenty of room to improve and to grow. And fortunately, we have a lot of talented people in our businesses that are really driving that on a day-to-day basis. And how much of this, from your perspective, has been driven by the B2B buyer saying, hey, you don't offer e-commerce today. I'd love to be able to buy via e-commerce. It makes it easier. Sure, I could Sure, I could send you a PO and maybe email it to you, or I could send you a spreadsheet with my order list on it, and you could put it into your ERP for fulfillment or whatever. But actually, I'd love it. Or maybe even EDI, if it's a really big buyer and it's a really merchant, then obviously EDI is the more common way to connect digitally. But what I've seen in the market is that the demand side that pushes these B2B vendors to make these changes can come from one of two directions or a combination of the two. One is, one is the B2B buyer pushes them. It's just as we have now second and third generation B2B vendors who maybe, you know, especially family businesses that maybe were started by a grandparent and, that, and then ch- child and now the grandchild is running the company. And so they're, maybe the grandchild now is a digital native and they're going, oh, well, of course we have to do e-commerce because we do e-commerce everywhere else. We need to bring this into the business. So sometimes it can be almost a top-down mandate because you now have a digital native running the business or, and, or you've got customers who are B2B buyers. And again, sometimes those are family businesses. And sometimes now you've got a third generation buyer who's now a digital native buyer. And, they, and their natural expectation is that they can engage with vendors digitally. And so the pressure to engage in digital transformation can come from those two quarters. They can come from almost top down or bottom up with co- consumer demand that just says, we got to do this. It's table stakes. But which one are you seeing driving more change? Yeah. There's a variety of different customer types. And, and we work really closely in, in any environment with the businesses that are closest to them. Sometimes the basics, the tried and true tactics just now used more in digital are the way to go. It's talking to customers. It's looking, it's the basics. I don't like to work on much that hasn't been either persona or archetype. Choose the language you like. In essence, how do we... What do we know about this customer persona? What are they trying to do? What do they? What type of company is it? Do they do they want to work in an e-commerce environment, or do they? To your point, do they prefer to work in a different environment that's digital, right? So, but I think the best way for us to do it is to understand, have a deep understanding of the customer. Where are they looking to improve? What's valuable in an engagement with them? And if part of that is we need certain information at our fingertips to make a decision. We then want to be able to click the button and purchase. We want to be able to track that order. If that's what they're looking for, then we're going to really study that closely. We work incredibly closely. Like I said, we have business teams that do this, that really are on the ground doing this on a day-to-day basis. And we just try to instill best practice in things like journey mapping. And now one caveat is going through the motions with that, those activities I've seen that done in my career 
the difference between doing it well and doing it poorly is literally the difference between having an outstanding kind of end digital product versus something that everyone's like largely disappointed with and the adoption can be really poor. And it's always a work in progress. But and then the, the challenge I've seen in B2B at, is you have a variety of, of typically people, personas involved in the journey to make a purchase. In consumer, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, you market to a customer. If you get them to your website, you can pretty much need to convince them. Maybe they're doing things behind the scenes, talking to other people, but you have them in a down a path where it's pretty straightforward. This one of the complexities of B2B is it's not typically a single point of influence. There's usually a decision maker, but there's influencing factors down the way that actually could either change the decision or highly impact it. So how, how do you understand the dynamics of what's going on, who's involved, and then how do you build digital solutions like commerce around that in a way that's going to meet their needs, give them the information they need to ultimately drive that final decision that gets them to purchase. Like I said, it's a, we have a good group of, of folks who work closely on that and really people close to the customer that can help us get that kind of insight. And then lastly on that, it's also a moving target and it's a work in progress, right? When Once you've done it once, it doesn't mean it's done. Things change. Like you mentioned earlier, it could be things like COVID. It could be things like just the way organizations decide to work and who makes which decisions. It doesn't change overnight necessarily in most cases, but you do need to keep a close eye on it because you're building to those personas and you're building against their either pain points or information needs or decision-making information. You want to validate that on a reasonably regular basis to make sure that the assumptions are still valid. And the good thing is once you're in that digital environment, you're going to get, you're certainly going to get signals from a measurement standpoint and an engagement standpoint that can help validate what you're doing. And how important has it been from your experience to help to encourage B2B customers once you have this digital experience that's available for them, whether it's EDI, whether it's a punch out, whether it's replenishment based e-commerce, whatever it might be, whatever the digital capabilities you're adding to the business, how important has it been for you to witness, say, for example, the sales rep, the field sales rep, whatever term you choose to use for your sales teams, they typically have a really close working relationship with their portfolio of customers. And they've got their finger on the pulse. They're sometimes bringing in special products just for them, developing special products just for them. They've got unique catalogs. They've got unique price lists. They've got unique trading terms and credit limits and all the rest that goes along with B2B. And so they typically, the salespeople, the boots on the ground, or the associates in your case, they are the ones that really have their finger on the pulse of what the buyer is thinking and feeling and wanting and needing. But on the flip side of that, how important is it for then, once you have those digital capabilities, for the salesperson to help onboard them into those digital channels? And for example, literally for that first purchase after you've enabled that channel, to, to literally sit by them or virtually sit by them and walk them through that buying process for at least one or two times so that they can actually be comfortable with that new digital experience. And you can show and prove out to that customer, hey, look, when you log in, you get your special pricing, you get your dedicated catalog, you get your assigned MOQs, you get all these things that you got manually previously, but you now you get a really seamless, almost consumer grade experience, but with all these additional layers of functionality on top of that, let us walk you through what this experience looks like so that you're comfortable then transitioning maybe from a manual ordering process to an automated ordering process. How important do you think that is to really work very closely with the buyer to make them feel comfortable with adopting those digital channels that you've worked so hard to build? 
Yeah, and there's this is always room for improvement, right? Adoption of digital products like commerce, any type of sign-in experience, whatever it might be, is is always something you have to plan very well for. Collaborate with the those closest to the customer, and obviously with the customer. And it's a challenge. And there's actually been some really good articles written over the last couple of years of how important it is to build those adoption strategies into your front end business casing for what you do and how you decide to do it. Because when it's an afterthought, I've lived through significant challenges with adoption and I, and there's things I would do differently in the future. So I can just speak from my experience and say that it's something that needs to be planned extremely well. The ones that are closest to the customer need to be the ones advocating for it. But in some cases, In some cases, customers are using these tools in other places and don't need to be sold on them, but there's always going to be adoption challenges. And what are the different techniques and tactics? I've seen some, frankly, I've seen some really good ones taken over the last year or two in our businesses where they get innovative and creative with that. For us, it's about the plan. It's around making sure that that is, it's part of your overall change management. It's not only customers that need to do things differently, but too many times digital products get put in. And we haven't wrapped around them the the operating processes, the change management that helps everybody do things different and better, the measurement structures. So I would say it's one of many aspects of of really building and then more importantly, getting to a run state and a value driving state, these commerce sites, these digital products. But yeah, I think there's, there's one thing I've noticed in my business life over the years is that you don't bat a thousand. You you learn from things, you try not to make the same mistakes twice. I think there's a lot of a lot of good information out there in this in in the industry on how important adoption is and what type of techniques would work and how you go about it. But like I mentioned earlier, it's a collaborative process. It is not it's not solely in the hands of one team. It, everybody needs to understand the role they play in it, and it needs to be well thought through. Any digital product, I think, requires that kind of thinking in advance, and then follow through, and then evaluation over time. And if you're not getting it right. And there's been plenty of cases where I've been involved in that. Then you figure out strategies to improve it. And one other thing I learned actually more on the consumer side was there's a test proven scale approach to things we look at. And part of it in the testing phase is just talking to customers and understanding like it might not be a commerce site. It might, but would you want to use something like this? Would it make, you know, your day in the day in your life easier and better? Would you view it more valuable in exchange? If you think of the value exchange, it's not about migrating people into a digital environment because it's good for us. It has to be that there's something valuable in it for them. Are they getting time back? Are they getting to your point? Is there better decision-making information at their fingertips that they can use? And in some cases they can use to help advocate within an organization why they're making the choice they're making. So yeah, it's a really important area. I think there's a lot wrapped up in it. And I do think it's a team approach to help, to help bring it to life. And when you don't get it right, work it change the plan a bit, test that, evolve. But, but if you don't get it right, then you're in a, you do end up in a situation where you have, you've built something that you still need to maintain that you're not getting the value from. And those are the things you always try to avoid in business. Are you a small or medium-sized wholesaler that currently processes your transactions manually? Or maybe you're a D2C merchant that is looking to expand and add a B2B e-commerce channel, but don't know how. Well, if you're ready to take the next steps on your B2B merchant journey, check out Mikata.cloud today to find out more about the e-commerce platform built from the ground up for small and medium B2B merchants. That's Mikata.cloud, M-I-K-A-T-A.cloud.
Oh, yeah. If you're going to build something, you're going to put your blood, sweat, and tears into it. You definitely want it to be adopted yeah. both internally and externally. Otherwise, it feels like a gigantic waste of time and money in a black hole at that, especially with B2B. Yeah. Because the complexity, I think, it, with B2B is so much higher. When you've got that default baseline of e-commerce functionality that everybody expects nowadays. But then over and above that, you've got all the additional business-specific complexities and vertical-specific complexities and business model complexities of B2B. Now, have you discovered in your experience, because you've got this deep pool of experience in large organizations, large-scale organizations now, and that's a unique perspective, right? Sometimes these B2B businesses are relatively small, family-owned businesses, and sometimes they're just global juggernauts like some of the businesses you've worked with. And do you find, and, and what I've discovered in my consulting is that discovery for a e-commerce project, for example, with B2B, I'll spend... 20, 30, 40, 50, 60% more time doing discovery for B2B projects than I will for a standard B2C, D2C project simply because those business processes inside B2B tend to be much more complex. So that all the way from all the way from opportunity to, to closed sale, it's a much more it's generally a much more complex sales process. And there's generally more people involved. It can't be 100 percent digital from the point where they're not even a customer yet to the point where they're a customer. And I think that also the products themselves tend to be more complex in, in the information you've got to get into the buyer's hands before they can make a buying decision. Sometimes there's tech, there's tech sheets, there's a whole bunch of data around the product. And oftentimes there's product configurators that are required in B2B that you would never get in B2C, D2C. And so I feel like the average B2B project would be, say, 25 to 50% more complex than the average D2C, B2C project. And therefore, we as B2B specialists, we need to be considerate of the fact that, and perhaps even more so than your standard B2C project, is that we have to, from a discovery perspective, we have to bring almost every single function in the business into that discussion when we're doing discovery. Otherwise, we will almost by definition, we're going to overlook something super important from an internal process perspective that maybe even the business doesn't understand as part of their default process. But if we, do, if we don't take that and we don't translate those processes into digital equivalents, we're definitely going to leave somebody out. We're definitely going to create a break in the process somewhere. And we're definitely going to create fractures in the customer experience as a result. Yeah, in some ways, it's very similar because it's end to end thinking and you don't want to. So I look at things like consumer advertising straight through to transaction. And we used to see it was too many and it was usually organizational challenges because there was there were handoffs that uh, if you're not connected as an organization, you cannot deliver a connected experience. It's just that simple. So there's complexities on both of them. I think they're different challenges. Like I said, there's more typically in a b2b environment there's there are more stakeholders involved in the process so that's complex there's definitely the things you mentioned in terms of you're not necessarily selling like a razor blade or something or a, a big whatever it is a shape so it's, it's, it's the products sometimes they can be straightforward sometimes not depends on the business but i think on the flip side is in the consumer space there's still a higher expectation on things like personalization the experience itself. So I, my, I, yes, you're correct. The discoveries typically you want more lengthy, but I think that there's difficulty and complexity and challenges on both sides are just a bit different. The other thing that I think is is really important to mitigate endless discovery is being as tight and strategic as you can up front, and really not embarking on the discovery until you've done a good amount of understanding of what you're trying to accomplish, who should be involved, all these things. I find sometimes in some environments, 
discovery can try to capture things that that maybe should have already been thought of a, a little bit more upstream. Have a lot of experience with different types of discovery. It's essential. It's important. But it, ultimately, it's getting the right people together that are involved in the process, thinking end to end and trying to really mitigate those handoffs because handoffs are the typically kind of the enemy of a digital experience if they're not seamless. And if, like I said before, if you can't you can't pretend you're connected with your with the way you operate your operational agility your systems your experience overall it just won't work so generally yes i'd say probably a little bit more significant discovery but i'd say the standards and the expectations can vary in a consumer environment too that make it more technical technology wise complex more tools more systems more things that are trying to orchestrate like a fully end-to-end personalized experience that's pretty tough to do too yeah and how often have you seen like just Again, comparing, and this is, I keep going back to this because I think B2C, D2C tends to overall, from a digital experience perspective, be more mature. And even the tools and technologies out there to support those experiences are more mature and more readily available all across the digital stack. And what I've often seen when I go into consult with B2Bs is that some of even the terminology that we use for components of the digital stack, they're just not aware of. It just has never been in their spheres. Things like CDPs, things like PIM systems, things, all the things that we almost take for granted in some respects in the B2C, D2C space um, in order to create really great contextual digital experiences across multiple digital channels simultaneously, marketplaces, social, catalog, all the rest of the digitally connected experiences that we need to create. In the B2C space, I feel like we're a little bit more mature in our understanding of what's needed in the stack, process-wise and base data-wise to get strong in digital channels. Nowadays, it's exceptionally common for your B2C, D2C brands to have a PIM system, a product information management system, where maybe the base data around a product comes from the ERP, it goes into the PIM system, it gets enriched by the marketing team or the product team with all the rich media, all the spec sheets, all the data, all the imagery, all the videos, the long descriptions, the product attributes, the structured data, all that stuff gets handled through workflows in a PIM system. And a lot of B2B businesses, they've just got an ERP. That's what they've got. Maybe they've got a WMS or an OMS on the, attached to the ERP for fulfillment and for pickback dispatch. But for a lot of B businesses, until they adopt digital channels, the ERP is the single source of truth for product data. That's where it's all held. And the sales specialists, the associates are the ones that know all that product information in their head. They're really super knowledgeable. And they could plug the data gaps. When they're physically talking to someone or they're on a Zoom call with a customer, they can plug some of those data gaps that exist in the business because they just know it. They know it off the top of their head. They've got the internal knowledge, the internal IP. And some of these brands, they're just not ready to expose that knowledge in a digital way yet because they've never had to. They've never thought about it before. Have you seen that be a challenge as well, that the data incompleteness in a lot of B2B businesses, that, that those gaps, there's, a, there's so much internal IP that is just not ready to be externalized yet and, until maybe you get there and you help them start thinking about how can we systematize this to get this data out to digital channels? Yeah, I haven't personally run into that. I, it's a definitely a challenge in the industry, I would think. And I, but I do think that a lot of organizations have a lot of talented folks that have come from businesses, whether it's consumer or larger B2B environments, where I think there's a good understanding of it. But I do think anytime you start getting into the kind of MarTech soup, right, it's not a great conversation. So what I've always coached my teams was, let's define the experience, right? Let's understand what we're trying to accomplish. Why is it valuable? Why is it going to be good for the business? Why is it good for all involved? 
And then let's be crystal clear with that and lead towards more of a service design blueprint. And then let's have technical experts figure out the solutioning, right? I think where things go wrong is everybody wants their own tool. And I, leading marketers for quite a while in my previous life, it's not uncommon for people to fall in love with, I need this Adobe thing, or I need this other thing. Maybe you don't, but let's not, I used to tell the team, let's not talk about the tool. Let's talk about the experience we're trying to create. Why is that strategically important to the, to the customer, to the organization? How does it uniquely drive value? And then what's, what we've gotten pretty good at is a team and a cross-functional team is, is taking the talented folks involved in this thing and really workshopping something that results in a service design blueprint where we're not the ones that are saying it should be done here, this or that, CDP, et cetera. But we then hand it to a real smart technical team who's going to come back with options and trade-offs and scenarios. And I work best as a decision maker. Do I understand all of those tools to the level I need to understand them? Absolutely. I don't love to play in that space. But what I do like to do is when I come back and my trusted technical folks come and say, here's three options. Here's the one we recommend. Here's the trade-offs with the three options. And here's what it's going to actually take from a system standpoint data data is the one that's always challenged and overlooked because everybody wants the tool but they forget about the fact that it needs to be powered often overlooked not always so that's the way i've seen it work better and i'm sure i haven't had a ton of experience in b2b frankly but i know we don't have a challenge with with smart digital folks knowing what's available out there i think what it is trying to keep it all focused on almost a minimalist mindset of let's, I also, one thing I've seen in my, my career in, in several organizations, ones I've worked at, ones that we've modeled what not to do is, is not getting the most out of the things you already have. There's a lot of experiences that you can deliver that you actually are already paying for before you stand up another piece of the stack. And I really keep a minimalist mindset because once you bring on that new piece of tech, you're building it you're paying for it and you're maintaining it. And if you're getting a tiny piece of value out of that, maybe you can get it out of something that's all close enough to at least till you get to a point where you've outgrown it. I'd rather outgrow things in a deliberate forward looking way than, than run into kind of this whole situation where we have the nicest stack on earth, but maybe we're not using enough of it, but you're paying for it and you don't get a refund. You do not get a refund if you don't use it to a certain degree. I made a mistake early in my career on the consumer side where migrated a system for the sake of integration with other tools, and I'll leave names out of it. But after the fact, I was asked from a really smart colleague, did you do that because you outgrew the use cases or because it's not an inexpensive thing to do? And we had fallen prey to the no, we actually hadn't outgrown the use cases we wanted to integrate with the other tools, which by the way, it probably never was never integrated with anyways, because it was probably bought separately and then backward integrated. Sorry to go on the tech stuff. It's a little bit of a pain point, I think, in organizations, which is let's be minimalist. Let's make sure we're getting the value out of the things we need. But to your point, there are basic needs and systems that are needed to do this. And the ones you mentioned are many of them. I haven't run into the situation yet though, where we didn't have enough awareness of that or a good understanding of what it takes, bringing it all together, operating around it, getting the value out of the collective set of tools. I think that's actually, from my experience, that's been a larger challenge than the kind of the organizational awareness or reading or organizational understanding of what it needs to get this work done.
And I think what you referred to, I think there's two things here. One is one is the concept of an MVP or not boiling the ocean. That's one of my favorite terms is let's not try to boil the ocean in this project. I don't, I've been part of big bang projects before, and they're the ones that are most likely to fail. If you're replatforming three or four different systems at a time and doing systems integration between them all as part of one monolithic project, it can be pretty scary, right? You dramatically, basically every additional component that you add to that front-end implementation, you increase the chances that you're not going to get ROI out of that implementation or not see a successful project. Because as we know, system integration can be one of the most complex and expensive parts of any digital project or any project for, for that matter at all around technology. And so I think there's two things you touched on here. Don't boil the ocean. In other words, let's define a super tight MVP, minimum viable product that we can go to market with that's going to meet our needs that we can grow into and grow with over time that has the flexibility to scale with us. And two, don't fall prey to shiny object syndrome, right? In other words, there's no such thing. I've been doing this for over 20 years, and, and I think you have too. And there's no silver bullet for anything in our industry. And no, no matter what vendor or specialist or technologist or consultant will tell you there's a silver bullet for absolutely everything, it does not exist. And so the reality is there might be a tiny silver bullet for you and your use case with one piece of technology, but that doesn't mean all technology is going to be a silver bullet for you. And so I think those two things are really important. And I'd really like to emphasize those two things. How do you even go about defining an MVP? Because MVP means different things to different businesses, right? And depending on their level of existing maturity. And so if they're a, a Gen 3 digital business, meaning that they've had two e-commerce websites before and now they're under their third replatform, for example, then their MVP is typically going to be much, their starting point is going to be much, much higher than a business that's never done e-commerce before and they're now doing e-commerce for the very first time. So I think having smart strategic thinkers in the business that can help the business define what MVP means for them versus what it means for somebody else that's 10 years down the journey trail. I think that's really important. And then also making sure that you're not just buying technology for technology's sake. Yeah. And I think what I've seen work really well is to your point, where are you in the maturity? Where are you with your foundation? There's a lot of use cases that want to be pursued that are super advanced, but maybe you don't have the foundational capability in place, that's not gonna work. So one thing that I've seen work really well is you get a, a viable foundation in place for commerce, whatever it might be, and then you layer on top discrete choices of typically business case enhancements. And those that's where you can do, if done well, rapid iteration on those in a kind of test-proof scale mindset. So it does depend heavily on where you are on the maturity curve and what you have at your disposal. If you're doing it in the trenches, in the foundation, then you're absolutely going to have a different mindset than we're now at this place where we can innovate more quickly and maybe in an environment where we know if we hit these KPIs, it moves to the next phase. I was fortunate to work with some really talented partners, I don't know, about seven years ago who brought that mindset to me. And it's first is just feeling it out with the user, internal, external, customer, whatever it is, is this something you might be interested in? And then it's prototyping it as fast as you can, but now you're in a statistically significant environment. Is this thing saying you're gonna use it is different than actually using it and using it in a way that's valuable to all involved, or at least to the customer. We, If we can create customer value, we should be able to turn that into value for, for either, in this case, associates, but also for the business. And then if you hit those KPIs, you should have confidence that your scale plan should get activated. And the other thing related to that that I learned from the same teams was when you actually want to activate a scale plan, that can't be the first time you've really thought that through. 
you do need that. But there's this balance between working incredibly agile. We've done really well with Scrum, with scaled agile Scrum teams. I'm not an expert, but I'm an expert at making sure we have them. Excellent. And how hard, how important do you think it is to have, especially in the B2B environment, how important do you think it is to have some skills? What is the balance, do you think, of skills in-house versus external, whether that be an e-commerce development agency, whether that be a system integration partner, whether that be a great consulting partner that can come in and help you through those different phases of going from discovery to MVP definition, building the BRD to helping build the business case. How much do you think is the, where do you think the sweet spot is in terms of not over-resourcing internally, but also not being so overly dependent externally that now you, if those people all went away, you could execute on nothing on your own. Where, and I, obviously this is different business by business and, and depending on the size of the business. But in general, if you were to just stick your finger in the air and say, okay, I think it's, it needs to be about 50-50 or it needs to be 80-20 or 70-30, what do you think is a great mix of internal versus external capabilities that you bring on as maybe a subcontractor? Yeah, it's so just right off the bat, when you're building new digital capabilities, for the especially for the first time, and that could be first time foundationally, it could be first time with significant enhancement and experiences. I think that's companies that do it best do it with a blend of internal, typically if it's a hard thing, a strong partner, consultant, integrator, whatever it is, and then potentially contractors as well, right? So you look at the situation where you say, and then years ago, I worked on a partner model because I think you want to be deliberate about this. You want to have a plan on what are things we internally should be great at? What can we be great at? And part of that is is uh, is really driving the plan and the strategy and the alignment and all the things, the value stories. But you get help from really good partners. They help you think through this stuff. And if they've done something like this five times with a like company, I'd like to avoid, I, I use a term called avoidable discovery. I don't like stepping in what should be avoidable discovery. Unavoidable discovery when we're innovating, we're trying new things, that's great, right? You learn from it, you improve upon it. So I think where the partners really help out quite a bit is helping you not make those kind of mistakes that just because we've had our heads down on our business, we might not have the wherewithal to say, geez, we didn't, We should just do this. But then you find out that actually could have been avoided. So I think it varies percentage-wise depending on the specific body of work. But I think when you're really in the business of standing up digital capabilities, you have an important role internally to play and it's significant. And you, and then you want to learn over time. We've done some really good work with two in a boxing with outside partners. So our agile practice is an example. That's a hard thing to go to a couple of courses and do with excellence, right? Although many try to do that. So what I've seen work really well is if you're trying to say, these are things we should be able to do on a repetitive basis internally, spend 12 weeks side by side, do the process, observe, co-lead, take off the training wheels and lead yourself, both at Bose and at Gore. I've seen some fantastic, and you have talented people who want to learn new skills and developmentally for People on my team or on related teams, they're some of the, my most proud development moments is where you've helped somebody through a two in a box or something like that, rapidly develop new marketable skills that are good for them and good for the business. Yeah, so no real magic formula other than go into it eyes wide open, go into it with a plan and be careful what you try to chew, knock off completely yourself. You know, I, I've seen that can go sideways pretty quickly, but that doesn't mean you can't do it over time. But yeah, I think it's a... I stand by 
check badges at the door, cross-functional team, and it includes, it often includes internal, external, and, and at the right time, it includes customers to help us understand what we're building for. I believe inclusion leads to adoption. I didn't create that quote, <laughs> heard it from another talented partner. But if, if you work that way with like having customers iteratively test what you're building, there's a much higher likelihood over time they'll use it than if you just launch it and spring it on them. But we do have, we're fortunate. We have a lot of talented individuals and teams that with a real strong thirst for learning and, and a passion for the overall organization. So when you have that, you can do a good chunk of it internally, but there's always a balance. And I've, my biggest successes digitally have been including that, that, that type of group, that type of cross-functional, cross, internal, external. And by the way, there are often people that I've historically worked with before because I have a high level of trust and I've learned from them. And you have to be willing. I always say, tell me the things I don't want to hear. Tell me the things I don't know. I promise I'll be open-minded. Convince me that I'm about to do the wrong thing. Convince me otherwise. And I've seen that happen a couple of times in some of the better successes I've been involved in. From my perspective, it aligns quite nicely with what you just said there, which is that great partners really help you see around corners. They help to de-risk projects massively. They help you not to step on the big landmines that, that just because you, you don't have the same experience stack as them. They can, they can see things coming that just are everyday bread and butter stuff for them that is not everyday bread and butter stuff for you. And so therefore, they bring a huge level of risk management to a project. Sure, if they're an external resource, then on a cost per hour basis, they tend to be more expensive than an internal resource. But the de-risking that they're able to bring to projects and the velocity that they're able to bring to projects as a result can just offset that additional hourly cost substantially and therefore dramatically increase the chances of project success as a result and product adoption. Yeah. I mean, there's, I have three simple rules for working with partners, consultants, a pick them wisely, right? You get, you can get the wrong team. You can get the right team. I prefer the right team and I do everything I can. And that means having a good network and a good relationship. You know who to call when you need the right help and have some fantastic partners, colleagues. The second one is don't flip them the keys and don't pay them to do what you are already going to do. I've seen that, I've seen that throughout my career in many organizations where one of those are both equally dangerous. You have an, leading a partner or a consultant in a major body of work, you have an enormous it's a great privilege and it's an enormous opportunity and you have to take it incredibly seriously. I've seen situations over my career where they just like, they're going to handle it. I, and that you have such an important role to, to be accountable and to drive the success of the program. The flip side is I've also seen over 20 years of different instances where it's, you pay a lot of money to then quickly tell them you want this. This is another adage or, or example I did not create. But you tell them you want to square and you then rapidly round the edges back to the circle that you already have. Wow, that is I do everything in my power to never do either of those two things. And I also make sure I try to get the right team and you don't get it always 100% perfect. But I, one thing when you work with partners in my days at Bose, when we shifted to like analytic partners and things like that, it's a bit of a retraining for the team because you move from maybe doing something that you couldn't scale to leading a partner or a consultant. And not that you get a formal training with that, but you do need a reorientation of, wow, 
my my job has changed and now I have to be more of a strategic leader and hold the partner accountable and work closely with them to make sure the outcomes are delivered opposed to I'm accountable to do it myself. That's a pretty significant shift. And what I would tell most people is I think it's actually it, for many, it ends up being a more rewarding and exciting, but there's always going to be people who prefer to do the, to be deep in the work and not lead partners. But you can't go into that without having a clear understanding and expectation. That's a shift, right? That's a shift in the way you work and lead. Yeah, you go from some people don't like going from being on the tools to leading people that are on the tools. They like being on the tools. They like predictability of coming into work every day. And here's the 20 tasks on my task list that I need to get done every day to do a good job and to be measured as doing a good job. And now instead of being, it's it's the old adage where you go from working in the business to working on the business. And that's where you want, ultimately, that's the kind of the progression I think you should want all your people to go through is ideally you want them to mature as individuals and as people and develop some of those leadership skills through being able to manage and be responsible for outsourced resources, because otherwise it, it becomes almost impossible to scale. You've got constraints on your growth. You've got constraints on your scalability. If you can't effectively manage partners, you just you just will never be able to scale. You'll, you will stay the size that you are with the resources that you have. So I think that's a very good point. Now, as we start to come to the close of our time together, and I just so appreciate your wisdom and sharing so freely from your experience with us. If someone, if a B2B business today does no e-commerce at all, they got no EDI, they got no punch out, they got no nothing, and they do everything through field sales reps, for example, and they're contemplating and considering standing up an e-commerce capability in the business. What would be your top one to two or three recommendations before they even embark on this journey at all? What would be your top tips for them to do before they get the show on the road? Yeah. I mean, I, I always start with some type of value story business case that includes things like not only what benefits will we get in this, but what are the things we need to be on point for? What are the things we're signing up for? It's easy to write business cases that say you'll make this much more money or you'll be this more profitable, et cetera, et cetera. But there are really hard things that need to be done and changed and committed to over time that it's unfair to a business leader to say, here's the business case, but it's missing all the hard stuff. If I was leading a business, I would want something that gave me the, and again, this doesn't mean it's 30 pages of analysis, right? It's before you, you want to keep it light enough to make a decision to at least begin the process right before you start engaging folks and spending a lot of time and energy. So the level of detail doesn't need to be volumes, but it needs to be compelling enough to say, yeah, this is worth going the next step on. And we understand what we're, what it'll take to actually bring the value out of this. That's step one. And then step two is, is really just do it step-by-step, step, be iterative. Of course, at some point, there's going to be some significant financial commitments, team commitments, et cetera. But you can use a process that lets you get enough information where I like to say it's a reason to believe, wow, this is making sense. It looks like customers would adopt this. They see value in it. They get it from their other companies they work with. And then the other thing is don't force it. There's environments still where it's sure you can have much more digital efficiency interaction, but there there are places where it's much more ripe for for transactional e-commerce. And there are places where it's just more supportive. And I think choose wisely in an organization where you go first with it and where the biggest opportunity is and where you might get the biggest momentum and reason to believe with it. So those are two places. And don't spend 18 months doing something, building something without touching a customer. Oh, I love that. That is so good. That is such wise counsel. I really appreciate it. Now, we're at the point of our conversation where I get to flip the script on myself. I get to turn the microphone 
over to you and I get to let you ask me one question. Any question you like can be personal, can be professional, doesn't matter. Uh, so I'd love to turn the microphone over to you. Michael Mangione, what is your question for me today? Okay. Wow. Give me a second to think about that. I always love to spring it on people because you know, it's, I love the off the cuff piece. Yeah, earlier in the call, you had an in, incredible depth of understanding of all of what it takes in a B2B environment, whether it was the components, the organizational understanding. So maybe it's not the most creative question, but where did you gather that experience? Again, great question. I gathered that mostly through agency work, to be honest. And so I worked merchant side and I did that for a number of years working brand side. Then I also had my own e-commerce pure play business, and we were selling both B2B and B2C. But really where I got exposed to lots of different business models, lots of different go-to-market strategies, lots of different tech stacks and needs for custom integration, thinking about the components of the stack that would actually add genuine value to both the organization and the customer experience, I, that really comes down to agency work and being able to be exposed to a significant body of portfolio of clients over a very compressed period of time. Do I think that everybody can do agency work forever? No, I don't because it's a super high pressure environment and you're working with client expectations and deadlines and commercial pressures and managing development teams and AMs and PMs. And it's very stressful. It's a very high pressure environment and you're doing Generally, you're doing ridiculous hours. I mean, my when I was working agency side, I think I averaged 60 hours a week. So it was one of those things where I, do I think that most people can live in an agency environment for life? No, I don't. But do I think it is a fantastic pathway to gain a significant body of knowledge in a really compressed period of time? Absolutely. When I went from the business analysis side to full stack solution architecture and specializing in specific pieces of technology, but more importantly, it gave me exposure to kind of every component in the commerce stack as well, not just the e-commerce front end, ERP, CRM, CDP, PIM, PAUSE, system integration, OMS, IMS, WMS. I, I would never have been exposed. I, I just would never have been exposed to all those different pieces of technology and how they fit together to drive business forward if I hadn't worked in an agency environment where that was required. So that would be what I would say is that I think anybody who really wants to hone their craft in our industry and they want to do it as quickly as possible, I think it's hard to do that outside of the agency environment. Because if you're working for a brand, you know, you're working, you're going deep. You're not going necessarily wide. You're, they're opening the kimono to you and you're going really deep in that organization and it's really specific to them. But you don't necessarily get the breadth of experience that you can get in an agency environment would be what I would say. Excellent. That makes sense. And I agree. I think it's like a crash course. It's, you learn more there than uh, taking classes on it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it really isn't. The funny thing is, even after I've been doing this over 20 years, and there's still not really, you can't go to university and kind of get, you can get a commerce degree, but you can't get an e-commerce degree. There's just no, there's, you can't go and study four years in e-commerce and come out knowing everything. Yeah. Most of us in the industry, we've learned on the job. We've been forced to learn on the job because there was no rule book. There was no playbook. There was no instruction manual to, to make all this stuff work together and be applicable to the businesses we're working with. We kind of have to figure that out as we go along. Sure, there's some kind of standard business analysis skills that I think you have to have in order yes. to be able to achieve good outcomes. Apart from that, I think there's just a lot of learning on the job pain that you have to go through. You do. You have to, sometimes you have to do to learn, or like you said earlier, have really good internal, external folks who've already done it before to say, Maybe don't, maybe don't do it that way. 
<laughs> yeah, and here's why. Because I've yeah. been burnt before doing it that way. Exactly. Well, Melissa, Michael, if people want to get in touch with you and they want to learn more now, obviously I know you're fully committed at Gore, but uh, is it best that people connect with you, say, on LinkedIn? Or where do you where do you hang out the most from a social perspective? Is it LinkedIn? For business-related things, LinkedIn is best, absolutely. And really enjoy engaging with folks on topics. It's one of those things where we all can constantly be learning in the, in this space, right? So having a good network of other passionate people in digital and commerce and marketing is, has been, it's served me well to date. And I try to keep those relationships going. So LinkedIn would be fantastic. And yeah, I enjoy, really enjoyed the conversation. Look, I've really enjoyed your time. And again, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom there. We're a small, tight community, especially around B2B. And I think it's our duty, especially if in an industry that's looked after us so well, I think it's important that we send the letter back down. So I, I appreciate you helping me in my effort to do that. If you're into B2B commerce and you would like to be a guest on B2B Commerce Corner, simply go to ecommerceedge.net, click on more info, then click on be a guest and fill out your details and we will get back to you straight away.